couple weeks ago, we started a series called Adventure Awaits. And during the time of Advent, there are characters that we are introduced to in the gospel accounts that little did they know that when they encountered God, there was something that awaited them that would, in many respects, cause them confusion on one hand or cause them wonder on another. And we've been talking about some of those characters, and we are using six of them over the course of Advent. And we talked a little bit about the ancient prophets as illustrated in Isaiah. Last week we talked about an old man by the name of Zechariah. Today we're going to talk about Mary. And then next week we're going to talk about the angelic assembly that we find in the gospel accounts. And then on uh, Christmas and New Year's, I'll have online uh, supplements to this series talking about the weary watchers of the shepherds and then the starlit sojourners of the Magi. So over the last two weeks, we have said this because we got to keep this in mind as we progress forward in our understanding of Advent. So Isaiah illustrates a, a variety of different types of prophets that were crisis managers of their times, and they called people to justice, or they called people to the common good. And they gave hope in the midst of helpless situations, and as they did so, they often thought of one that would come that would actually lead the nation back to the glory days that was under King David. Then we talked a little bit about a man named Zechariah, an old priest, elderly. He was an individual that had been a priest for many, many years, but he never had the privilege of lighting incense in the temple until one day, by choice of lot, this elderly priest is chosen to light incense in the temple. He has a wife by the name of Elizabeth who is barren, which is a common theme in the scriptures, that God intervenes and she is able to have a child at an old age. While he is offering incense, he encounters the angel Gabriel and he is told about this son that he is going to have who turns out to be John the Baptist, who is going to be the forerunner of the Messiah. He scratches his head a little bit and wonders how this could be since he's an old man and he's married to an old lady. And the angel says, you're going to be struck mute until she delivers. And he can't speak for nine months. And what we find is that Gabriel tells Zechariah that their prayers have been heard, but this child that they're going to have while he is not the Messiah, he is the forerunner of the Messiah, and they are to name him John. So now we encounter a young woman, direct opposite, Zechariah, this old senior citizen priest, and a young woman named Mary, who is probably a teenager. She's an individual that is a young woman that lived during a turbulent time, and that's why I said she had a courageous faith. Let me give you a little bit of context for a moment. When we think about the narrative of the birth of Christ, we take all these components found in Matthew and Luke, and we kind of uh, 
want to squeeze them all together kind of into a single manageable unit. Rarely do we give context to what was going on or what led up to that moment. And in order to understand this profound visit by the angel Gabriel to this young girl, you need to understand a little bit of the context in which she lived. Each gospel writer has something unique to say about the arrival of God uh, to the earthly family. Luke, in particular, is talking about the birth of Christ from Mary's point of view, while Matthew is telling it from Joseph's point of view. So what is Mary's point of view? Mary has lived through the trauma of being a poor family that lives up north, and in the region of Galilee, she is an individual that was trying to make ends meet. Her and her family lived in the traumatic times of sequential oppression, all the way back to Babylon, Babylon and Medo-Persia, then Greece under Alexander the Great, and now Rome. And there were concerns, concerns about daily bread and crushing debt and land loss and dispossession that saturated her world. Some of her concerns are some of the same concerns that we have in our day and age as well. Now how God enters the world, enters into her world first and then ours, matters. Where and when God chose to come into the world carries a lot of significance to it. Advent is not about one season. It's about an ongoing cycle of people who live under the oppression of those who want to use and abuse. The typical prophet over people has been around for a long period of time. And Advent narrates to us, or at least orients us, to the type of people who lived a lifetime of faithfulness even though they were crushed by the circumstances they lived in. This first Advent is born out of darkness and despair. Before light or warmth came, generations of Jewish people in Judea suffered at the hands of one empire after another. And each successive generation endured another wave of occupation. More sons lost in battle, more land confiscated, more hopes dashed, invaders raising towns. They enslave women and children. Some are crucified as rebels because they want to push back on this oppressive regime. And they're wrestling this whole time with the promises that God made centuries before through those prophets that we talked about. There is a period of time between your Old Testament and your New Testament. These are often called the 400 silent years. But they are not silent by any means. All it means is the writings that were collected by the early church, they kind of ignored some of the writings that were written between the Old and the New Testament. But some significant things happened between those two testaments. During a period of time where the Greeks are ruling over the Jewish people, there's a man by the name of Antiochus. He's called Epiphanes because he's a madman. 
And he is the ruler of the Seleucid Empire, which is kind of a state of the Greek Empire. And what we find is he is threatened by some of the Jewish people who are pushing back on the oppression that is brought by the Roman Empire. And he decides he's going to invade Jerusalem. And his soldiers set Jerusalem ablaze, tear down houses, demolish the city's walls. And what we find is Antiochus marches right into the temple and slaughters a pig on the altar. Now you know how, how vile that is. The pig is considered a non-kosher uh, animal in the Old Testament. This became known as the abomination of desolation. And what we find is that it stirred the revolutionary tones of the people. And there was one family that rose up that wanted to push back on this oppressive regime. And it is the Maccabean Revolution, perhaps you've heard of it, that this family, the father Matthias, wrestles with the reality of the darkness around him and the human struggle against oppression on both personal and political levels. And he had five sons. Matthias began a military campaign against the Seleucid Empire, and they engaged in guerrilla-type warfare. He has one son named Judas, and he is called Maccabeus, which is translated the hammer. He was an individual that led a resistance and the Maccabean era uh, is where Hanukkah comes out of, that period of time where Jewish people celebrate Hanukkah. And the Maccabean era was short-lived, though, not long after the Greek Empire, the Romans came, and once again, they are under the oppression of this empire. And so God decides that he wants a collaborator with a better way, the way of the common good. And so he reaches into an area that is most unlikely to choose a new national deliverer. You know, I've missed having a whiteboard. At my heart, I'm a professor. And I want to show you something here. This is the Sea of Galilee. And this is the Jordan River. And down here, you have Judea. And in Judea, you have the capital city, Jerusalem. So Mary is from a small little village called Nazareth. Now these people down here consider themselves the true Jews. And they tended to look down upon Galileans. And to think that this group of people up here, who because of their constant resistance against oppressive regimes, we find that this resistance, though, often led toward intermarriage. And what you have this area in between, Judea and Galilee, is called Samaria. 
And these people were especially despised because they are considered half-breed, half-Jew, half-Gentile. And although these people up here are Jewish people, those who are in Judea would not look with high favor upon Galilee. You know, racism has been around forever. And it goes back into the Advent narrative as well. And so when God chooses a young girl that is going to bear this miraculous conception of the Son of God and his entrance into the world, he chooses Mary. And where is she from? She's from Nazareth of Galilee. Now, I want you to think about that for a moment. Galilee was nothing like Judea. This northern region was known to push back on invading forces. And Judea had a tendency to think that some of these Galileans put the entire nation in jeopardy because of their actions. They were considered lesser Jews because of this mixed race element. And yet, when God dispatches an angel to meet Mary what we find is that he is choosing someone that is most unlike anything that the people who are waiting on the Messiah would expect. A young girl, a virgin, single. She's betrothed to a man named Joseph to be married, but when this angel appears to her and says, greetings, you are highly favored, the Lord is with you, that puts Mary in a very awkward position. You're going to have a child. And Mary says, how can this be? How can I, who am a virgin, have a child? Now we throw around the term virgin birth a lot, but really the more accurate way to describe it is uh, virgin conception or miraculous conception. I mean, Mary had a baby the same way other women had a baby. But... What we find is Mary, here is this woman, this young woman who finds favor with God, and she becomes the locus of the incarnation, the focal point of where God is going to enter into humanity because of this miraculous conception. And so what we find taking place is Mary is put into a position of choice. Will she believe this one? Will she receive the news that this angel came to bring? Would she be willing to cooperate with God entering into the world to give hope to a kind of people who have needed hope for a long period of time? And so after the angel says, you have found favor with God and you're going to conceive and give birth to a son, and you're going to give him the name Jesus, and he's going to become great, and he'll be called the Son of the Most High. And the Lord is going to give him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over Jacob's descendants forever, and his kingdom will never end. That's what the populace has been looking for. This one is going to lead a revolution. This one who's going to get this foreign power off their backs. But Mary says, how can this be since I'm a virgin? And the angel says, the Holy Spirit is going to come on you. He's going to overshadow you. 
And so the one to be born is going to be called the Son of God. This one that she is going to bear receives a title that would be a great threat to the powers of Rome. There's only one person you call the Son of God, and that is Caesar himself. And anyone who would suggest that they too are the Son of God would put themselves in jeopardy of crucifixion. God has a plan, but will she agree to it? That's the key question. And what she does after she hears this, she says, I am, verse 38 of Luke 1, the Lord's servant. May your word to me be fulfilled. I want you to think about how courageous that statement is. May it be as you have said. You see, this is a voice from the bottom of society. And she's going to be the one that helps to announce a coming Savior that's going to bring justice to the world. The one that's going to show how to put the world to rights. And it all begins with this courageous commitment, may it be, may your word to me be fulfilled. Now think about this for a moment. That commitment that she makes is going to put her at great risk. The risk of rejection. She's not married. The risk of judgment by her own community. The risk of potential death because we'll find that she is going to name him Jesus and she is going to call him the Son of God. And what we find is Mary, this young girl, needs a little bit of encouragement. So the text goes on and says, at that time, Mary got ready and hurried to a town in the hill country of Judea. So down in Judea is where Elizabeth and Zechariah live. And it says she entered Zechariah's home and she greeted Elizabeth. And when Elizabeth heard Mary's greetings, the baby leaped in her womb and Elizabeth was filled with the Holy Spirit. And in a loud voice she exclaimed, Blessed are you among women, and blessed is the child you will bear. But why am I so highly favored that the mother of my Lord should come to me? As soon as the sound of your greeting reached my ears, the baby in my womb leaped for joy. It's the start of something. God is opening up a way. Blessed is she who has believed that the Lord would fulfill his promises to her. Mary visits Elizabeth down in Judea. And it is there she is given this confirmation that as hard as this calling is going to be, that God is with her. And Elizabeth is with her as well. And so these two women, both pregnant, one an old lady who should not be able to have a baby, and one a young woman who is a virgin, both these women anticipate a participation of God within their life to be able to carry out what God is going to do in the world. So how is Mary going to respond? Well, she's going to cooperate, but she begins with a song. And we began our service with that when I read for you just a couple of verses out of what is known as the Magnificat. 
The Magnificat is a song that is based on the song of Hannah in 1 Samuel chapter 2. Hannah also was a barren woman and she prayed and she prayed and she prayed that God would open her womb and he does and she gives birth to a a boy named Samuel. And after Samuel is born, she takes him to the temple and she dedicates him there. And Samuel will become this mighty leader in the nation of Israel. Now Mary is thinking about the song of Hannah. And you'd have to read that in 1 Samuel 2, 1 through 10 yourself. But this is based on that. Listen closely. Luke chapter 1, verse 46. And Mary said, My soul glorifies the Lord, and my spirit rejoices in God my Savior, for he has been mindful of the humble state of his servant. From now on, Generations will call me blessed, for the Mighty One has done great things for me. Holy is His name. His mercy extends to those who fear Him from generation to generation. He has performed mighty deeds with His arm. He has scattered those who are proud in their inmost thoughts, and He has brought down rulers from their thrones, and He has lifted up the humble. He has filled the hungry with good things. But he has sent the rich away empty. He has helped his servant Israel, remembering to be merciful to Abraham and his descendants forever, just as he promised our ancestors. And Mary stayed with Elizabeth for about three months and then returned home. She sings this song, but it's a revolutionary song. It's a song of rebellion. He's going to bring rulers down and he's going to lift up the humble and it's going to be a reversal of roles in society. And it all begins with this courageous act of faith. Mary sings with great joy. God is on the move in the miracle of her body. Her body bears the solution to the suffering of the world. Her people's cries have not been ignored. God sees her. God hears her. God's with her. And God is with all who are under the oppressive powers of empire. Mary's words form an announcement, a voice, if you will, from the bottom of society that justice has finally arrived. And anyone that is listening to Mary during this time hears the implications upon those who are in power. This act of courageous faith begins with may it be. May it be. Or maybe let it be. But it begins with this opportunity to trust God. And maybe that's the point we need to learn during this Advent season. Maybe it's just the point of God may it be for my family. May it be for my community. May it be for my coworkers. May it be for your church. May it be for the world we find ourselves in. And I will be your cooperative servant. And I will do my best to help out as I can. Here is this young woman pregnant before marriage. And that would have been highly questionable. And she said, may it be, long before she said, I do. 
And she was an individual that knew that there would be even the potential threat of those who were the religious Taliban of that day who would turn to Deuteronomy chapter 22 verses 23 and 24 and say, any woman who is caught in adultery should be stoned to death. You remember Jesus' encounter with a woman who was caught in adultery in John chapter 8. And he comes and he bends down. And he writes something in the mud. And those who had stones in their hands turned around and walked away. He lifts that woman's face up and says, Where are those who condemn you? Nowhere. Neither do I, Jesus says to her. And what a great encouragement that is to think that out of the courageous words of Mary is the opportunity to also hear the loving promise of God's help, support, forgiveness, and strength in a rough world that we are living in. You know, Mary would never ever have a normal life again. Mary's friends and family and community probably would never look at her the same. Yet walking around Galilee, up north, was a young and special woman who seemed ready for the adventure that God would take her on. At times she would be mystified and confused about some of the things that Jesus said and did, right? Uh, at times she wondered why Jesus would choose to do some of the things the way he did those things. But on one occasion, as Jesus was about to begin his public ministry, she's at a wedding. And in Cana of Galilee, this is in John chapter 2, they run out of wine. And wouldn't you know it, it's Mary that perks up and says, that's my son, Jesus. Whatever he tells you to do, do it. So Jesus tells the servants to go get some stone water jars that were used for ceremonial cleansing and to fill it with water. And the host of the party at this wedding comes and takes a sip of this new wine that Jesus miraculously changed. He says, you've saved the best till now. You've saved the best till last. Most people serve the good wine when you run out, then they serve them the junk, right? Not here. God saves the best till last. God saves the best till now. God takes this young woman and this woman that has been highly revered all these centuries by the church because of her courageous act. Constantly look to Jesus as the great miracle worker because he's able to change water to wine, because he's able to heal those who are sick. And the encouragement I want to give to you is God is still changing water to wine, figuratively speaking. God is still healing people, sometimes physically, but more often emotionally and spiritually. And all of this began with a courageous young woman, one who is willing to say, may it be. And maybe those are the words of Advent.
while watching and waiting, Lord, whatever your plan is, may it be. Join me in prayer, please. Heavenly Father, we do pray that as we watch and wait in a rough world, in a highly politicized environment, in a world that gives little regard for the common good, we pray that your kingdom will continue to make inroads. May it begin in the hearts of people that are gathered here, in the hearts of your people, to open up and say, may it be, I am the Lord's servant. Show us where we can be of great service this Advent season. Help us to be the type of people that are able to encourage others who might be having a rough time this season, maybe because of their health, maybe because of a loss, maybe because of the economic circumstances. Lord, help your people still be the ongoing encouragement of Mary's Magnificat, that you recognize the humble state of your people. Take now these moments, renew us and fill us with your spirit, even as you did Mary and Elizabeth so long ago. For we pray in Jesus' name, amen.